Hello and welcome back to All the War They Want. My name is Carmen Brooks. Once again, is your host. I've got Jeff Engel with me. And today, Mr. Bradley Barnes is joining us. I'm actually going to have to read this, Bradley. You have the background. Bradley is a leader in the information security field. He has held positions as an information security officer and a GRC consultant, which is governance, risk, and compliance. Through these roles, he has worked to incorporate and implement compliance to governance and risk frameworks in both the public and private sector organizations. Bradley, what on earth does that mean? Uh, well, first off, thanks for having me today. Uh, as far as what that all entails, uh, Throughout the public and private sectors, there's really just, uh, you know, various standards and frameworks that must be implemented, whether that be the NIST 800-171, ISO 27001, uh, Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, or other, you know, state laws and regulations. Uh, so for these organizations, you know, you either have a internal team that's able to carry out uh, the responsibilities of implementing those, or you bring in uh, an external consultant. Uh, so with me, that's where I kind of come in, uh, kind of go in and understand the business processes for that organization, uh, help define some of the risks that are associated, uh, and then ultimately just help, um, I guess, develop the policies, procedures, as well as the countermeasures that are needed uh, to fully implement those controls within that organization. So... Bradley and I were talking about it before we started. Basically, he's a he's an Air Force guy that doesn't fly, and I'm an Army guy that does. But the way he described um, that just now with the whole function, and both in you know government and industry, is basically he's a he's a navigator, right? When it comes to implementing you know information technology and and cybersecurity. Uh, programs for an organization? Well, certainly, you know, uh, when it comes to policy and procedure, I think a lot of people don't like to get their uh, their hands dirty, so to speak, because uh, it can be You very... get lots of ink stains, especially if exactly. you're left-handed. Yeah, right? paper you, cuts. You get them all over your arm there. Um, but, you know, all in all, uh, it could just be uh, very confusing at times because uh, policies just sometimes don't point you directly in the direction you need to go. So, um, you know, having somebody that fully understands that is, is really critical to making sure that you are uh, implementing the, uh, the standard effectively. So did you do this in the Air Force? Because I know you were the information systems security officer. Yeah. So, you know, about that, I actually started my Air Force career in 2010 uh, in munition systems technology. I know far from the, uh, <laughs> the cyber or information security realm. But, uh, you know, uh, breaking away from active duty, I uh, just didn't have a, a real direction. Uh, and I guess it was being young and immature and not really understanding where I wanted to be. Uh, so through some research and, and kind of just internal reflection, I uh, finally kind of found out, you know, what direction I wanted to be. And it, it was in the cyber realm, uh, cybersecurity. Uh, and initially, I thought I was going to go into the, uh, I guess, the more technical space. And so I joined the Tennessee Air National Guard and uh, came a part of the communications flight there. Um, and then going through tech school and coming back, uh, found out that, uh, you know, it's completely different realm uh, when I kind of fell into the, the GRC side of the house as an information system security officer. Uh, but through that, uh, I was really able to learn uh, a lot of the processes that it needed to take as far as, you know, creating standards, um, developing, uh, you know, the countermeasures and the policies that really needed to be implemented uh, because I worked heavily in the risk management framework. So the NIST 853 controls, uh, the 837. So, uh, you know, 
if you've had anything to do with Air Force publication or, or probably any type of military publication, you quickly understand that the first policy you see is not the one with the answer. It always directs you to about three to five others. Uh, so that helped me really understand what it's going to take to become an effective GRC consultant or information security officer. Uh, and I've been able to really utilize that uh, to kind of continue on my career and help organizations understand that. Uh, I do like it a little bit better in the civilian sector because usually if it is, is the ISO 27001 standard, that's the one I got to go to to get the answers. Yeah, cool. definitely easier to navigate commercial side. I thought about your your backgrounds, you know, being a munition systems you know, technician. They're, they're really the only you know, commercial option you had then was like to be a, a warlord or a you know an arms dealer, Maybe something a janitor, along those lines. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, I had, and I had a similar experience. I you know when I started in weapons of mass destruction, there's not a lot of application for that unless you know you're into some really weird stuff, even right. even weirder than me. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> All right, so you both have obviously spent time serving. And now you're in the cyber world of things. So how has traditional fighting, how does that differentiate from cyber warfare that we're experiencing now with everything going on with Russia and Ukraine? Bradley, you want to? You can but, take that. I'm I'm happy to, to so, hit any, any softballs you lay up. Yeah, <laughs> certainly. So you know, whenever we think about uh, traditional warfare versus cyber warfare, uh, you know, with traditional, you think of boots on the ground, kind of everybody's face to face, or you know, not technically face to face now, uh, given current scenarios. But uh, with cyber warfare, it's just it seems like everybody is can be you know uh, attacked from uh, various locations. Um, and really, you know, for a variety of reasons, it's overall, it's cheaper. Uh, you know, when you think about the, the kind of the major picture of it all, um, you, you don't have to continue to push, you know, for deploy individuals, um, with cyber warfare, you, you have individuals that can sit at home and still carry out effective attacks, um, that, you know, can really have some, some damaging impact, uh, whether it be on your critical infrastructure or, you know, just a um, uh, business in general, uh, being able to get have that financial gain as well. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, everything at once was novel, right? At, at one point, the rifle, you know, was was unconventional in, in warfare as people were standing in line, poking each other with spears. Yeah, so as it evolved, what we are now calling, you know, traditional is really Sierra and land, Uh the, the fourth domain, right, after those three became space, and really that ties into, you know, geo, um, geo uh, positioning systems um, and targeting mechanisms that happen in space war, uh, space warfare. And now cyber being the fifth domain, all of that's becoming what is, ra you know, really the conventional elements, you know, of war. Nothing's going to happen in just in isolation. So calling it hybrid, you know, looking at it from that perspective, it really just, it's almost like saying that, you know, what they did in the Revolutionary War of, you know, doing ambushes on roads is is novel, but it's just, you know, what's going to be normalized, you know, within the next two, three, four, five, fifty years. So what I, what I think we're seeing here is, you know, um, the ability to project power is, is becoming, you know, generalized to any party where previously was 
you know, America, Russia, China could, you know, secure their own borders and be able to project power at a larger scale globally. Now, everybody can project power globally, but you can't really protect your own borders. And that's, that's really, I think, the most fundamental change, you know, in, in warfare uh, from how it was even, you know, a decade ago. It's so interesting. So I know Jeff and you and I have had this conversation several times before because my friends when I talk about being in the cybersecurity world, it's everybody has this almost like a mental picture of what a hacker looks like already. And it's, you know, the basement dungeon. It's this like terrifying guy. What, Jeff, can you talk into what a hacker looks like now? Why people have this hilarious image of a hacker and how that's different from what a hacker looks like in real world time? Yeah, I mean, I mean, almost anything that you think about, you something evokes a mental image, and that's done for a number of reasons, right? You want to, you know, if you think about the posters they put up of the Unabomber, it was a guy in a hood, you know, face blacked out, and, you know, somebody crazy living in the woods. You know, hackers, the guy that's, you know, still it has got a computer set up in his basement instead of going out and playing sports. I mean, the reality, you know, really then and now is, you know, hacker isn't even necessarily a bad term, right? It's not, you know, they they say they have different colored hats, but all that's kind of nonsense for most people. It really comes down to what are you doing with the capability you possess? And most of the, the people with the most refined capability typically used it for in ways that people didn't anticipate and didn't like initially. Yeah, we even saw, you know, some of these guys – like if you've seen the the catch me if you can scenario, right? Mm-hmm. Who do you, who does the FBI hire to help catch people, you know, pushing fraudulent checks? The guy who did it, exactly. and, you know, so effectively that he was actually better at building the security for those systems than people who were trying to compete with them. So if you think about that, there's a direct correlation to the cybersecurity world, you know, and and cyber warfare. You're seeing you know, proxies, criminal groups, quasi-directed by governments. But you're also seeing that those groups being that they're geographically disconnected and operate in uh, in in different ways, that you'll have events like with Conti where you, you happen to have, some, you know, somebody declared that they were going to be aligned with the Russian government and they didn't realize that they had somebody inside of their own network that was, you know, U- Ukrainian. Ukrainian, right? So... Th- it that is, you know, sig- significant for a number of reasons. From my perspective, is that you really don't know, and you can't necessarily control these these proxies and the role that they're going to play in warfare. I think isn't really well defined yet, and we're starting to see a little bit. Um, but I think they're going to become more and more significant over time, both in in cyber, you know, critical infrastructure protection and attacks, but also in information warfare that supports you know, those, those other domains. And that, that's what I'm monitoring very closely of how you're, how, you know, a, a nation state entity like Russia is trying to protect data inside of their borders and the messaging that their populace is consuming and how their attempts at that control and propaganda are being projected outward, but they're also being projected inward. And that, that part of information warfare is being attacked using, uh, using cyber proxies. So it's, 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 yeah, being a student of history and somebody who spent my entire adult life at war, 
Yeah, I'm I'm paying most close attention to that because it's building a playbook for both how to attack and defend, you know, in the in the near future conflicts. Well, certainly, and you know, speaking to that, when you talk about uh, you really don't know where a, what a hacker is, whether they're on the good side or bad. Like we have, you know, the certified ethical hacker certification. You have individuals performing pen tests for organizations, so they understand where those vulnerabilities are at. So. Um, you know, a hacker can be of great benefit to many organizations. Um, and then you have groups uh, like anonymous or hacktivists that, um, you know, Russia obviously invades Ukraine and they're like, we're, we're totally against this. So bring what you got because we're coming at you now. Uh, and it just it's really odd to see how those groups can kind of uh, change to to fit whatever narrative they really want to meet. Um it's funny though, because being in the cyber cyber realm, I guess um, you know you see all these depictions of what a hacker is. And to me, after working it, I almost think of it like the Wizard of Oz. You know, you, you go into, you see this big green figure, and there's you know smoke and lightning bolts and everything. But when you whenever you pull that uh, that shade away. You don't. You never know who's going to be behind the curtain. Yeah. Uh, so you know, having a clear depiction of a hacker is a really difficult uh, kind of figure to draw at this point in time because there, there's just so many variations that are out there. So I think, and I think this is what kind of what's causing such chaos right now in the world. At least people who are that I've been talking to, people looking at everything that's happening in Russia, Ukraine. There's so many different threat actors. There's so many different types of hacks that could happen, have happened. What can we predict what is going to happen next? Is there any way that we can get that intel? You know, honestly, from my perspective, that's really tough. Um, so, you know, there's so many different ways that we can be attacked and so many ways that we don't know that we're going to be attacked. Uh, I mean, a hacker that, that is trying to infiltrate an organization uh, is always coming up with a new way to get in and a new way to uh, kind of carry out what their objective is without being seen. Uh, and so, you know, as, as technology continues to evolve, we open up so many more doors. Uh, and that's why, you know, we have the, the CVEs and Patch Tuesdays that Microsoft put, pushes out uh, so that we can try and close those. But as those continue to open, uh, trying to predict what the next major attack is going to be, now, you know, yeah, you could guess it's probably ransomware uh, more than likely, but how they're going to actually uh, kind of infiltrate and carry that out is really tough to determine. Yeah, it's I have this the I have lots of sayings as you know, but it's prevent what you can predict and adapt to everything else. And the reason I have that is there's a you know, something I learned coming into the, onto the business side that it became a parallel to what I did in special operations is you have to be constantly thinking about the art of the possible, right? What could I do if I had these intentions, these adversarial intentions? And then you build your capability to those things. But on, on the business side, there's basically a fiduciary responsibility, which comes down to, you know, did you act in the business's best interests and did you uh, perform some level of due diligence? And, and I've keyed really on that element of really due care and due diligence. That comes down to, would a reasonable person have known, expected, responded, and you know put in together the protection detection response mechanisms for this? And that piece, I think, is what's 
um, what always keeps us at a, a bit of a disadvantage because that reasonable person, you know, ev- evaluation is not necessarily informed by what can be predicted. It's what they predicted. So by pushing that off to, you know, your, your risk folks or whoever without, you know, taking an uh, active role in that as a business leader, they don't necessarily have the same fiduciary responsibility of due care and due diligence. And if you don't go and ask them, hey, do you think this is possible? You know, and if this happened, would we be able to respond to t- protect, detect, recover, and that isn't tested? Then you're kind of sitting there, you know, on a hope with hope as a contingency plan as a as a business leader, and that's something that I never really ascribed to because of how I was trained, or you know, early on, you know, in the military and in special operations specifically, that we had to be prepared for what might happen. And right now, most business leaders aren't even preparing for what will likely happen. Um, and that that I think needs to to shift in order for us to build more resiliency. Um, but to your point, can you predict what's going to happen next, the next zero day? Absolutely not. But can you predict that you will get targeted with some type of ransomware? Yes. So if you don't back up your systems and you don't have, you know, patch your critical assets, you haven't told your your teams these are the most important things to protect. This is these are the things that we must be able to detect and respond and recover from. Yeah, then you, they're never going to be able to justify from their perspective, why those investments need to be made. So there really is, It's this is a team sport, right? And if the coach just shows up on Monday asking if they won the game, then you're likely not going to win. So given that information, given that we can't really predict, but obviously national critical infrastructure sectors are at risk for being hacked, um, how do we succeed in really defending our country and those sectors? I think, I think that goes back to what Jeff was just talking about is, uh, you know, we, we have a understanding. It, it's not like a new, <clears throat> I guess, a, a new ransomware uh, or a new category ha- has been seen recently. Uh, not to say that there won't be, but uh, so we have an understanding of what type of attacks are being carried out. And, uh, you know, there, there's so much access to information that we can continuously research that and kind of get a full understanding of maybe the best practices that we need. Uh, I think Minor Attack is one of the best uh, websites out there for really understanding uh, how an attack was carried out, uh, what are some of the warning signs, uh, their, what is it, tactic te- tactics, techniques, and protocols. And so, you know, if you're utilizing those within your organization and actively implementing those to create that security best practice, uh, I think that's the best way to kind of thwart that. And, uh, you know, uh, awareness and training is a huge piece uh, with that. So, so, you know, not only does the CEO, the CISO, and your information security personnel need to be aware of what our security best practices are, but all personnel within the organization need to have that continuous training uh, because there there's so many vectors that, you know, you talk about social engineering, um, phishing attacks, like there's just little avenues that people can easily access information. Uh, so if you don't secure those, then you're really, you're, you're leaving yourself open, you're leaving your company open. Uh, so I think it's important that from it's a top to bottom perspective that we all need to take that information security is something we all need to hold dear because uh, the minute that we kind of let ourselves loose for a minute, uh, that that's when we can kind of open ourselves up to attack. Yeah, I think 
you know, I've, I've talked about it before, but it's really the four P's, you know, prioritize, patch the important things, plan, and then practice. Yeah, that's the, you know, that's the go-do now, right? We talk, I talk about that a lot, but, you know, as a, as a business leader, you should be looking at your cyber program just like you look like at your financial program. You know, you don't go 12 months without reviewing financials, right? You don't um, hope that that investment in sales and marketing is going to get you the revenue return and then wait for, you know, nine months to see whether or not you hit your, your semi-annual target, right? That it's just not how business is done. So I, so we treat that in a way like it's novel, but it's not, right? Cybersecurity risk management is no different than risk management in general. And that's what business, that's the language that business leaders speak. So what I did, right, to give you an example that's outside of cyber is because I w- didn't do this with my cyber program, given the level of maturity we have, but came to sales and marketing, you know, all the different parts of, you know, the sales organization, direct, indirect alliances, marketing, advertising, et cetera. They come to me and say, well, what's my budget? And I come back to them and say, well, here's what your targets are. Come to me with a plan and tell me who's doing what, what we're going to get from that, how we're going to communicate it, right? What are the messaging is that we're going in with? I need that plan. I'm not going to give you a blank check and then you go spend it on the coolest marketing tools or the best camera. It's going to come down to, do we have a synchronized and integrated approach to having the highest level of confidence that if we do this, we're going to get the return? You can do the same thing with the cyber program. You know, establish where you're at in relation to where you want to be. Give the assumptions, constraints, priorities, and trade-offs. And then you give that information to your team to, to bring back a plan that says, this is where we're going to make the investments because this is where our risk is. We will be protecting your critical assets, prioritized, right? We will be able to patch critical assets when they have critical vulnerabilities that are being publicly exploited. Here is the plan for if our protection mechanisms fail, that our detection systems will pick them up, right? And that you've practiced for all of those likely scenarios are going to happen. I will spend more money on practicing than I will on tools because you can do a lot with people, right? Humans are more important than hardware. Whereas if you spend all that money on tools and you don't have the skill set to, fu- to operate them, to integrate them, to monitor them and manage them, then all of that investment is is completely wasted. Right. So talking about investing into your cyber program, Bradley, you have a lot of experience in compliance and risk. So where would you say, just in your experience, where that largest gap is in companies? So I kind of drawn that out to uh, probably three to five different uh I guess areas, and one of those asset management. Uh, so if you don't know what's operating within your environment, and so at that point, you don't know what's approved, what's not approved. Um, so if somebody's able to access and you can't say, oh, hey, there's a red flag there, uh, th- there's a problem there. Um, and then asset classification, <clears throat> and that comes down to uh, really tying those to be able to prioritize your assets based on uh, your vulnerabilities uh, that are associated. Uh, and I'll kind of wrap that in a bow a little bit later. Uh, and then data discovery is, you know, a lot of organizations have, whether it be CUI or sensitive data, that's just thrown about their 
their environment, and they don't really have that understanding of where it resides and who's the owner, uh, and that's a problem in itself. Um, and then I think an easy one, an easy win that a lot of organizations don't implement is multi-factor authentication. Uh, having a you know that dual boundary uh, does you know kind of create that defense in depth approach, uh, whereas just a single password, uh, especially a lot of organizations don't really implement a uh, a really good password or an effective password strategy anyway. They keep it simple uh, and they allow you utilize like company name, one, two, three, exclamation point. There's a problem there. Uh, and last is the risk to operations. Uh, so we don't really understand. Uh, a lot of times when we perform risk assessments, we kind of, and I understand, you know, based on where you're at in your organization, there's ad hoc levels uh, and then there's an optimized level. But, uh, you know, for a lot of organizations, they do the risk assessment annually and then they shelve it. They don't look at it throughout the year to really understand, hey, okay, we've identified oh, wow. this risk mm-hmm. and, we, and we haven't continuously addressed it. Um, and so there right there is a major problem. And so being able to, uh, to tie that together uh, is, is critical. But uh, for a lot of times, risk assessments are just done and next year we're going to readdress. And there's yeah. an issue there. It's funny. I think my... Um the areas where I have generated the most uh, knowledge and expertise, for lack of a better term, are the areas where my initial interaction with them have been complete disasters. So the risk analysis is one of them, right? And I came in the Army the first, like, day one when I was in my first duty station. They're like, hey, we're going to go to the range. And they gave me this document. Like, you have to do the risk assessment. I'm like, it's a blank document with all these columns on it, I had absolutely no idea what to do with it. And this is something that is done literally every day. What is the difference between the risk of going to a range and the controls you put in place today versus every other base, every other company that was going out to shoot? Yeah, there isn't one. So maybe just Pre-populate the risk analysis, and then say, and then leave some space. Or hey, we're going to do something unique. Yeah, we're going to shoot upside down, hanging from monkey bars. All right, cool. You should probably add that. But generally speaking, <laughs> everybody goes to shoot at the range the same way. It's exactly the same layout, right? The the old Ruski pop-up targets, right? So you get comfortable shooting at little green men in the distance. It well back in that day. You know, I'm a little bit older than you. Uh, <laughs> maybe it's changed, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, when you have something that that people don't understand, that is complex to do, where it becomes like a significant investment in motor movement just to do that one thing, it's not surprising that 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 wouldn't be handed off, and that people can actually put that into practice operationally. Um, the other story I'll leave for another time. It's about technology and how I ended up saying I need to be better at that, but. Yeah, that that piece it's it's not surprising with the the disconnect between risk and operations. You know, it's it's hard enough to do. It's a significant investment. And I still have not found anybody. You know, I won't I won't make this blanket statement because that's going to be diming people out. But I would say the preponderance of organizations from national security down to, you know, the 7-Eleven the the ones that have the highest probability of being able to tell you what assets they have are company organizations like Walmart, not organizations like, you know, the government or the intelligence community or the defense industrial base or large healthcare. 
because there's a disconnect between buying things that can end up on the network and being able to capture, categorize, understand what data is on those things. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I think we all need to invest in, you know, somebody from a Walmart with inventory management, you know, that, to come in and, and do that. It's actually not a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a really onerous thing to do, right? Yeah. You know, somebody that's like, how many, how many people have come into an organization on day one and they'd be like, I, my laptop... You know, and then they're like, oh, this didn't work. And it's just like getting them back out to the fore, you know, to, to work is is the priority versus making sure you know what assets on the network or what they're doing with it. And the this is the example of where complexity is the enemy of security, right? It's just got to be much more simple, yeah. you know, to know what's on your network, what data is there, where how the assets are categorized. Because if it's not, nobody's going to do it. And exactly. that means that I can sit on your network with a, a device for an extended period of time, and uh, and you won't know about and it. Operate freely. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so circling this back to conquest, how is what we do different from majority of cybersecurity companies out there? Who's going to answer? I don't know. Bradley's better looking than most cybersecurity people. <laughs> <in> the... <laughs> hey, that's a compliment, Bradley. <laughs> no. She's not used to that. No, not not for me. (laughs) (laughs) You don't give compliments. No. No, I I think the approach from Conquest is what's special. Um, Obviously, I think we have an elite team here. um, And, you know, we had an on-site, and I can't remember the individual that said it, but he said, iron sharpens iron. And I truly believe that with Conquest, uh, with the product that we put out and the individuals that are behind it and driving it forward uh, from top to bottom, I don't, honestly, I haven't been in an organization that I've felt is this special, and, and I truly believe that we're driving towards something greater with cyber resiliency and allowing uh, companies to kind of fully understand every aspect of their cybersecurity program. Yeah. Um, great, that's a great answer. I was going to say, like <laughs> president of the him. company, I bet that, no. <laughs> thought that felt good to hear. And also, that's a shout out to uh, James Cunningham. <laughs> Iron Sharpens Iron. <laughs> there he is. There he is. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I had the, I had my formative years in, um, you know, in and around JSOC. And when I had the opportunity to build, you know, I had seen a lot of things out in the wild, as they would say. And that was the only organization I saw that when they said they were going to be somewhere and they got something accomplished that they did. And they didn't keep that, like, in-house. They... They saw it as a responsibility, not just to take on the most challenging missions, but also to make everybody else better. Uh, so, when building this, I've I've tried to try to keep that in mind. Yeah, it's uh, it's the right example. Yeah, from a from an organization standpoint, from a business standpoint, and yeah, that gave me everything that I have. You know, being exposed to that in the early years. So anything that I can do to help amplify that approach and that message, you know, I'm happy to do it. Yeah. And I love this. A non-technical person coming in, Conquest also helps connect risk to operations, which is what makes us unique and different. Do you guys have any closing thoughts? (laughs) No, I'm, I think we are, we're talking about the enemy, right? Um, yeah, the enemy is not just the the you know middle aged guy sitting in his mother's basement. You know, um, it it it's not just nation state adversaries. 
It's not just, you know, criminal gangs and proxies. You know, the thing that we fight the most is, um, you know, our own blindness to what's happening in the world. You know, our, you know, people walking through life and not realizing that, um, that they're in a fight, you know, and if you don't know you're in a fight, you're guaranteed to lose it. So I'm not going to say that the end user is the weakest link. Apathy is probably the weakest link. It's not just the you know, users inside the environment. It's the belief that somebody else is going to solve the problem. You know, the government is not going to save you with this, right? Not when you have 400,000 organizations across the U.S. that provide critical functions. And all it takes is somebody being scared about the uh, lack of access to toilet paper that causes a supply shortage with toilet paper. You know, that's what COVID taught this country, that all it takes is a little bit of fear that create the problem that you are trying to prevent. So we can win. We will win. Right? We just have to realize that that we need to get a lot better and everybody needs to be mobilized to both realize we're at war and to do their part, both fiduciary responsibility and their moral obligation. Uh, you know, just to add on that, um, kind of, I guess, the piggyback, <laughs> as uh, the military would say. <laughs> um you know, as we continue to open ourselves up, we look at the Internet of Things, um, it, everything seems to be connected. Uh, and, you know, you, one person has probably 10 items around them that is connected to whether it be their home, um, Wi-Fi or whatnot. Um, so just be knowledgeable uh, as to what's out there. Uh, and that just goes into, you know, the apathy and kind of having that full understanding of, hey, don't just because you're, you're not at the forefront of the fight. Have, have this feeling that you're safe, you're protected, because everybody is a target. Uh, it's just, uh, like they say, it's not if, but when will that happen. Uh, so taking the necessary precautions, uh, even in your home, uh, to ensure that you're, you know, creating some form of uh, cybersecurity around yourself, uh, I, I think is critical, uh, because that's going to not only protect yourself, but as well as the organization that you're within. Awesome. Well, thank you both for your time. Thank you for your sacrifices and your service as well. It's must appre much appreciated. Um, thank you to everybody out there listening. We appreciate you. Join us for the next episode. Cheers. <laughs>